thank you for tuning in. This is the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and I'm Patrick Alex, your host. On the show, we will be exploring the still and the leverage opportunities of entrepreneurship in emerging markets. We will be talking to founders, venture capitalists, ecosystem builders, and policymakers. I hope you enjoy the session, and let's dive right in. Hi, everybody. This is Patrick Alex from the Emerging Markets Enthusiast Podcast, and we are back with another episode. And I have the great pleasure to welcome to the show Georg Wolf, who is CEO and co-founder of Buckle and Seam, a DTC brand for premium quality leather goods that brings ethics and compassion back into the world of fashion. Georg, it's great having you on the show. The pleasure is mine. And uh, I have to admit, I have goosebumps. As I already mentioned, your voice is, uh, is tremendous. Congratulations to your podcast. Thank you so much, Georg. I'm really curious to hear more about your entrepreneurial journey, how Buckle and Seam came into being, how your strategy to build a startup that is based on creating really jobs and sustainable production in Pakistan with a strong impact strategy and uh, the European market and more the developed markets as a potential for your customers. How did this come into being? I would say that idea came, came about five years ago at that point. Marco and I were working at a rocket internet venture with my girlfriend Jenna, who ironically has in Jenna Street her own vegan leather bag brand for women uh, as of today. Yeah, so we were stationed in Pakistan for rocket internet after I had already lived in Bangladesh and Myanmar, where we were working on a, let's say the pendant, the copycat of, of a local Amazon. And the three of us uh, met in Pakistan and We, we literally spent seven days a week, 20 hours a day with each other. It was quite abnormal uh, work-wise, but also absolutely in terms of adventure. We got lost, like literally, we got lost in deserts in Oman. Like we traveled to Kashmir in the north of Pakistan. Like, we, saw, we saw mountains that are beyond anything that I'd ever seen um, We had so many wonderful experiences and uh, really got to appreciate the country. At that point, the time of each one of us was coming to an end in the country. Mark was supposed to go back to, to Berlin, to the rocket internet base. Uh, Jenna was supposed to be moved uh, to move to South Africa for myself. Iran was on the list. At some point, uh, with a couple of weeks to go, Mark and I were having a coffee break. And we thought, hey, it would be really, really cool to put to work the things that we had learned start something of our own. At that point, Marco, you know, this super blonde white kid uh, was running through Pakistan, a, a quite traditional place in his shorts and his uh, short sleeve button down shirts and his tummy bag. And I was running around with a flimsy leather bag, thought, hey, they're great artisans here, uh, as we had witnessed through our work. There's amazing leather here, as we had witnessed through our work for our marketplace. Why don't we connect all of this together and prepare a bag that's we like that is a one size fits it all solution for all men so that most things become redundant uh, in a man's life that was the idea i guess the social aspect that you mentioned before really came part of our story or part of buckle and seam after dealing with hundreds of delivery guys like our delivery fleet for daras at that point and trying to you know establish certain SLAs, handing out written flyers and realizing, oh my God, like none of them can really read 
what we had written down uh, and realizing that almost half the country can barely read or write their own name. So at that point, we realized, okay, it would be quite cool to have this brand, have this project and give back to the community that has welcomed up us with open arms and with whom we had a great time until then. Absolutely. You know, it's very inspiring. And also, um, what, what is Buckle and Seam today? If you could briefly, for, for the listeners that are not familiar with your brand, elaborate on the size you've grown into and the impact you have actually already generated in Pakistan. A very good question. So what is Buckle and Seam today? There are physical proofs of, of our existence, but then there's also an overarching thought, like a vision, a mission kind of that we have, a brand manifesto. Basically, Buckle and Seam is a thought or a conviction that education is really the key to equality in everyone's life, yeah, to professional growth, personal growth. What we do in Buckle and Seam is we, we design and we develop items that cater to this cause. So we're designing products, in this case, uh, leather bags for men, be it uh, business bags, travel bags, backpacks, uh, small items, of which 3% of our net revenue we donate to our girls' education uh, program. We started off uh, with 4,000 euros with Mark, Regina, and I in my parents' apartment, out of which we got later evicted for commercial use, <coughs> and a couple of interns that we barely paid. Um, and today we are 14 people full-time employed here in Berlin, and we have set up our own factory in Pakistan, the place that we lived for so long. There we employ 70 people full-time that have guaranteed contracts with a two-month termination period. So to all your listeners, uh, maybe check your own contracts, see how, how long your termination period is. All of them have health insurance, not only them, but also their families, meaning kids and wives or spouses. They earn roughly three times the average salary. So on that front, we really try to take care of these guys. On the educational point of view, we started off with one school, Anam School, who had been in existence for 35 years and had really never grown above 20, 20, 30 students. Together with the founder or the son of the founder, we were able to outgrow its premise and move to a bigger premise and on top of that partner with the largest NGO in Pakistan to support four other schools. So we're getting close to 1,000 kids at the moment. Oh, that's striking. And uh, it must be really, really satisfying to see also how the potential of your business and what your business has turned into that you really have that that triple impact. I'm really curious here of how, how you set that up because I can imagine that starting the business and having that expectation, okay, you're going to produce in Pakistan for the Western market. Now you've got your own factory, but where you're thinking about uh, contracting suppliers at the start and having that outsourced, how did you decide to really produce in-house? Down memory lane, it was, it was a journey. Like it literally was a journey. We thought this is going to be so easy. Like we know market, we know how to spend money on Facebook. Like we know how to generate sales. Uh, I had, I had worked uh, as part of my education. Well, I'd interned uh, with Puma as a product manager. So I thought, okay, product would be also all right. We had all led teams in our, with our previous employer. We thought, okay, it's going to be like a piece of cake. Holy crap, man. We are so wrong. Like, Yes, in Pakistan, you know, Adidas produces leather soccer balls or leather items, like Bearpaw, a German-based archery brand, produces leather quivers and gloves. Uh, Tigger, for all of you uh, who are not familiar with the brand, is it's a large German brand that produces uh, leather jackets over there. So leather is really abundant. Like wherever you go, you see leather or leather factories or you hear about people working in leather. None of this was bags. So the first guy that sampled our bags, like 
we never even got to see until the third sample after the third horrible sample. We thought we just, you know, go to someone who knows someone and he would come back with a perfect product, made all these nice sketches and here this and there that and here it all becomes modular and compartmentalized. Yeah, time, as I mentioned before, like we were, we were about to leave Pakistan and yeah, we thought this person would be able to, to provide everything we needed and he really was not. And so we, we showed up the day before I flew out and I was like, hey, how can we make this work? And he said, look guys, here we are in Pakistan. You guys are Goras, white people. You come to my country. The way we do it, we drink a chai and then I will chai as a local tea. <clears throat> and now I will make you the best bag ever. Like, but I need your brand name. And we're like, oh wow, this guy is really committed. Uh, yeah, brand name, brand name. <laughs> we are awful with names. At that point, the, the bag that we did, uh, Kara, uh, still on our website, I had a buckle in had contrast stitches. So it's contrast seam. So it was like buckle in seam. He said, okay, buckle in seam it is. We left Pakistan. And maybe two, two weeks after, I wasn't Cuba on my annual vacation. Marco was in Mexico on his annual vacation. In Cuba at that point, like there was no internet. So you had to go to these hotspots, pay a lot of money, and then you had half an hour of internet. I'm not sure how it is today. And so I'm on this call, like ridiculous. Hey, Marco, did you get the package? And Marco said, yeah, man, I got the package. And I said, okay, what do you think? And it was just silence. And he said, well, what do you think? <laughs> and I really did not know what to do, uh, what to say either. Like it had nothing in common with what we had depicted. So at that point we realized, holy shit, like we cannot do this on the side. Like we, we either quit our jobs and do this full time or we, uh, uh, we dropped the project right there and said, okay, how much money do you have? Yeah. This many thousand euros and how many, like thousands, like was closer to a hundred than 10,000. Uh, um, and how much money do you have? Yeah. So and so much. Okay. Let's, let's, let's take six months and see if we can sell, produce, you know, 30 bags and sell 30 bags and. We go from there and I mean, worst case, we have a nice adventure together. So um, yeah, we flew back and started working closely with uh, with a friend, our back in the days uh, managing director for our previous employer. And he was like, hey guys, I have the space, I have machines, you just hire people and there you go. So we went for it. And I think also was was really the the right decision to do it by ourselves from the beginning, because number one, you you control quality in a way. Number two is you you have a direct impact with the people that you work with. In Pakistan, there are minimum wages, but there's no law that says if you stitch for someone, you have to be full-time employed. So most of the people are paid per piece and there's no minimum wage on pay, like on per piece level. And oftentimes it would be like, hey, Patrick, thank you for reaching a quota today, but tomorrow there's no work. So long, farewell, good luck. And you by your, like on your own. Fortunately, uh, um, we now have 70 people who, uh, you know, who dance with us happily, who we have uh, team dinners when we go, who produce our marvelous bags. It's not always easy. It's a lot of effort, but it's, it's sort of rewarding. Absolutely. No, I, I bet it is. And it's just really an important mission. And also the point you're making there, right, in comparison to other clothing manufacturers and those big brands uh, that are obviously quite criticized in terms of outsourcing production, not respecting those standards. It's a great inspiration also for the wider ecosystem uh, where you're operating in. And I was wondering when you when you started Buckle and Seam, were you inspired by the other, call them social brands, such as Tom's in your category? How did you identify that cause specifically? Or was that based on the need in the very market you're operating? How did you identify that project? And how do you make sure that you're really generating the impact you're looking for instead of just saying, okay, it's a nice social branding strategy, but you obviously want to create a tangible impact? Very good question. 3% sounds little, but... 
it also amounts to something and in our case to uh, 2000 kids almost that can go to school hopefully soon we will reach that but to answer your question on the on the brands that inspired us i have to say from a social point of view I think, yes, you have to mention Tom. I think they are really a pioneer in the space. When I lived in the States, I think that we saw it become pretty big. 2007, 2008, 9, 10, 11. My first couple of pairs of Toms. But I do believe that it was a bit more intrinsic than just seeing, okay, here's a brand that does well, or here's a brand that does this. I think it's it's a bit like a red line through through the things that I've you know been interested in, be it um, the internships that I worked in. My first internship was with Fede Cucagua, uh, which was a Guatemalan fair trade coffee exporter, the largest of the country, where we really were able to empower you know small cooperatives, make sure that they get the right price on the world market, and um, yeah, improve their overall situation, provide them with microfinancing, those kind of things. Like you could really see, like we we would not just be in Guatemala City, but we would go out how we could see the impact that you made. But then also Puma. I mean, Puma is, uh, was at that point, it was 2013, not the big company just today, but still already pretty big. They were one of, one of the first ones to release their green income statement or their green balance sheets, you know, where they try to you know, provide traceability and accountability down to just the tier one suppliers, but also tier two, tier three. So the suppliers of the suppliers of the suppliers, which I found extremely interesting and trailblazing it was really a mixture of all of this um, for marco to give a bit of background he does come from an entrepreneurial family but he was always instilled with a thought to give back His family is also supporting a, a school and orphanage in african countries that he used to visit uh, on a biennial basis for him i think it also came quite natural and was not necessarily an inspiration by you know brand x or y I mean, any brand that does something good, thank you. And I admire you, but I think it was more involvement over time. From a performance point of view, from a, from a business model point of view, obviously there's the D2C component in our company or in our brand. That means we try to cut out the middleman to give a more affordable price for a more premium product to the end customer. In 2015, a lot of, especially accessory brands like emerged and uh, made use of Instagram at that point and influencer marketing and really were able to scale quite high. I think MBMT or Movement, a US-based watch brand, is quite a good example that was a big hit. I think that's that's the combination of all of it. And when you talk about bags, for us at that point, or for me at that point, um, we divided in our company. Mark takes care of finances and performance marketing. I take care of product, sales, CSR. But from a product perspective, Stella McCartney, a, a vegan bag brand for women, was using extremely interesting uh, materials. Filson, obviously, this old heritage type of brand, like was always kind of an inspiration or inspiration. And then clean lines of Mont Blanc, like things that I could really not afford, <laughs> but I wanted to have. And I didn't understand why do I have to buy, pay for a bag so many hundreds of thousands of euros? I mean, let's let's see if we can make it a bit cheaper. This mix made, I think, buckle and seam in the end. In terms of your D2C strategy, and uh, there's obviously quite a lot of competition in the space, I, I can imagine, especially in fashion. So how do you feel in the long term you're going to prevail as a direct-to-consumer brand, as Buckle & Seam? What would you say are your really differentiators and making you competitive in the, in the long term? And uh, also if you can elaborate briefly in terms of your business case and uh, and the margins you can have, obviously you don't you don't have to share those margins specifically, but I think it's quite fascinating to see that in you're in a really tight space in terms of margins and you want to bring over to the consumer the best price possible for a high quality product, but you're still 
position to give back and donate part of your return? Very, very good question. I think the space becomes way more crowded or has become way more crowded. It was five, six years ago. So many great examples of brands that really took off. And there are a lot of examples of brands that are now you know, starting to take off or trying to take off and cutting into, into a market that has been dominated for way too long by rigid brands. Rigid brands in terms of their pricing model, in terms of their design, and in terms of their design language, I would say, but also in terms of how they operate, like how dynamic they are, how they react to, to certain, certain developments in the market. But it becomes more difficult to take up that space, yeah? to become one of these uh, people who cuts into a market that is dominated by a particular brand or or category of brands. An abundance of brands and products makes advertisement today more expensive than ever before. Yeah. Advertising space becomes scarce. Like if you nowadays, if you scroll through your feed on Instagram or Facebook, every third or fourth uh, post you will see is, is, is commercial. And this space, even though it's, it's quite frequent, yeah, becomes more expensive to occupy. Also, obviously the established brands have realized, oh my God, like we slept through this trend for the last you know, not just a couple of years, but many years and have started to take the necessary investments. And that goes along, obviously, with, with data privacy. Fortunately, from a customer perspective or from a user perspective, we looked at more seriously so that, you know, targeting that right customer for you becomes a bit more significantly more difficult. Like before you could, you know, say, okay, this is more this, this is Patrick and Patrick, I want to, I want to target Patrick. Today, I have to phrase it way more broad. I have to say, okay, and they can define the age, you know, your, lo your location, uh, certain other interests, but it's not as precise as it was as it was a couple of years ago. So for me, I, I think long gone are at least for the past couple of years are the days where D2C brands go crazy, go for an unsustainable scale to maximize in the end exit multiples yeah, that we have seen for, with with brands like uh, Movement. That I mean, maybe Emma was a successful example a couple of years back, a D2C brand for for mattresses, but Normally, the idea of a D2C brand is this is a product that's called a leather bag. This product costs me, let's say, 100 euros of production. And I will need to sell it for 700 because this person wants to earn this much, this person wants to earn this much, this person wants to earn this much, and in the end, I want to earn this much. You know? Usually, you would, you would work with a five to seven multiple, sometimes even higher. Or worse, you say, I want to occupy the space of 600 euros now. You put the production price uh, to a certain level. Yeah, you say, okay, then the product can you know, be a max of 80, 80 euros, 85 euros uh, in production cost. I think in the beginning it was quite easy for, I mean, even for us to say, hey, if we, if we have, let's say, 100 euros production costs, we sell the product for 300. Like we really cut out the middleman. Like we cut out an unnecessary person in, uh, in wholesale, like importer, um, some agents in the middle, like we just do it ourselves. And in the end, it's one third product, one third marketing, ideally less, and then one third your, your other variable and fixed costs. And then this is the amount of money that you need in order to break even at the end of the month or at the end of the year. And yeah, I mean, even though we become more efficient in terms of people needed, needing to visit our website and purchase, it becomes way more expensive to acquire them. Yeah? We really have not had that, that moment of scale in terms of marketing. Now, and you mentioned it, and I think it is quite essential something that we underestimated the power of brand, brand association, brand collaborations, 
brand placements, where do you sell your bag? How do you communicate about not just the product, but also your purpose visually, verbally? And how do you make sure that Pat in the end has a bag of us and becomes a brand ambassador? And comes back and purchases from us. This was a this was a very long, uh, a very long way for us uh, to realize it. And I would say only for the last maybe year or so. Like in the beginning, brand was important, or the, like the content creation for brand was very important. Uh, but then we kind of neglected this for a while, and uh, only now we have come back and said, okay, look, we need to really charge up the brand in order to be uh, sustainably successful uh, and not just be, you know. Uh, dependent on Google and Facebook. Our multiples have shifted a bit, but they are they're still roughly at the three net multiple, maybe you know, a bit higher. We, we want to keep it fair. The material that we use is amazing. It really competes with, with the bigger brand. I mean, when you conceive, when you, when you look at Buckle and see who do we want to be in terms of just looking at the product, forget for a moment the social aspect of it. But what we want to do is we want to pick up the person after studies who maybe has only known Herschel or Eastpac uh, his entire life and who's aiming and aspiring to buy all these big good brands offer him the the leather and product experience at a fraction of the cost say at 50 percent of what a premium brand would charge like the bridge or coach or mont blanc as i mentioned really exciting uh, stuff dude are you getting ready to uh, to purchase your bag huh? yeah, well, of course i am i just gotta make sure it comes down to to chile that's that's the only downside but i so have to have to get one of your bags i can't believe that that i don't have one yet it's almost a shame we do ship uh, internationally so last year 82 countries i don't I'll have to check whether chile was part of this but i think we would we would be able to get it back to you i really appreciate that and i know your products of course and they're fantastic quality i think you got to be obsessed with product there as an entrepreneur and and even more so if you have actually a, a product that creates emotions such as accessories right i also wanted to ask you maybe to be a bit provocative here uh, you as an entrepreneur uh, considering that the lines of business and non-profit are blurring and uh, you're certainly quite impact driven are you profit or impact first uh, very good question. If you look at our bottom line, uh, I think everybody would uh, confirm that we are that we are impact first. But more importantly, if you come into our office today, talk to the people, we are impact first. None of the people that is here uh, is working here for the money. Like all of them, we have one uniting factor, which are, is our vision and uh, is the values uh, that we operate with. In the end, like you have to find your purpose, right? <laughs> And you have to define your purpose. And the moment you have done it and you follow your purpose, like you will be you will be automatically more happy. Like something that gives you like small little pleasures in life. You start becoming more happy, something that's long-term, that's intrinsic, that will stay with you. This is this is the kind of space that we want to become and or want to offer. Nonetheless, we didn't found this company to become social entrepreneurs. We founded this company because we saw an economic potential for us and we wanted to do it right in the beginning you know i would have these interviews from i don't know lmun or some uh or even uh, at the fairs that we go to magic in las vegas and people are like yeah are you a social entrepreneur and you know for the first years i was like no like why even though we we're already doing all the things that i was or to the for the most part all the things that we were talking about slowly started thinking about this a bit and then one day marco writes i was in the states and uh, i think for me it was super late and Marco just calls me and it's like, Marco never calls me. Like he would write me on Slack and he said, Georg, check your emails, check your emails. And there was an email from Forbes, uh, you know, awarding us uh, the Forbes 30 under 30 for a social impact program. And I guess at that point I started thinking more about, okay, like, is this a title that we should accept? And I'm not familiar with the exact definition. I think it's very, not wishy-washy, but it's, it's very fluent. You know, there are a lot of people that do great things. And I don't know how you see it. And for me, a social entrepreneur is someone 
who develop something for the sole purpose of helping someone else, like some unprivileged person, or to save us from the imminent environmental disaster, that is a proper social entrepreneur. Where the thought was there all along, hey, let's help the people, let's help the planet. I don't think that was the case for us for the first couple of months. Like for us, it was, we want to help the customer, but we want to do it right. And honestly, like whether I sell a thousand bags or I sell a hundred bags or 10,000 bags or more, it's, it's a mean, it's started to become a mean, like a vehicle to, to go back. And Saturday I'm flying back to Pakistan uh, because we're opening an, another school. And like th that brings me joy to know that each one of these kids uh, on average will impact, you know, 12 other kids to also go and learn. And then this kid will have a couple of children herself or himself. And in the end, it's trying to make a space that, that has so much potential. I mean, I assume Latin uh, is not, not any different. If you're just able to grasp that potential and propel it, that industry is just going to expand and like people will have equal, uh, equal opportunities. Interesting fact, I learned that 1 million Pakistanis are deaf, mute or hard in hearing. And a total of 18 million are directly affected by their life with a deaf mute. So either a child or a spouse or a parent or a family member, like 18 million people. And now think about how do they communicate? Like they need a universal language. I just started thinking about this like a year ago, but there was no language, no universal sign language in the native language. So each family had more or less their own signs. 18 million people. How many people does Austria have? How many people does Switzerland have? And how big are these economies themselves? Like just try and grasp that thought. You know? In the end, they are also, for the most part, illiterate. Lots of things to do, but yeah. I wanted to stress the point you made there in terms of uh, the means to an end and the strong purpose of your company, the strong sense of your, your mission. And I think that nowadays, in order to be successful as a business, you need to have that broader perspective, no matter if you're profit or impact first, I think we need to take on a more universal perspective. It also makes it scalable because you're using the dynamics of business, but by scaling your business, you're going to also scale your impact, right? That's it. And I think um, that makes, you know, the answer tough impact over profit is the fox chasing his own tail right now, you know, is, is one able to, to exist without, without the other. But I, I do believe your profit becomes way more sustainable the moment you, you seek an impact and you seek a purpose. I do believe that there are other great bag brands out there, great accessory brands. Many of them have equal or even better materials uh, to an extent. Like you can, you can copy materials, you can, you can go for similar designs and functions. But what drives you, what motivates you, I think will make you truly unique and will, in the end, connect individual, individuals with each other. We, we start becoming a team. We are the team, okay? educators there should be the team or there has to be the team uh, environment so many other aspects as well absolutely and switching gears there a little bit in terms of your role as an entrepreneur and co-founder how did your role in the company evolve what were the main challenges you has you had to face and uh, what i always most admire about entrepreneurs that you have to take on those different roles and faces as your company grows and you have to evolve with it. So if you could briefly elaborate on, uh, on your experiences there, any learnings you would like to share with uh, aspiring entrepreneurs? Definitely would like to, to, to share a few of those. Maybe I split it in, into different segments. So I think the first challenge is always yourself. The biggest challenge with you and 
that's probably going to change the most is are you clear in your head like what's your own priority are you aware of your true purpose and goals like is it money is it publicity is it recognition is it following an interest like solving a problem uh, change a, a rigged system so to speak learn you know the moment you're clear about this a lot of things will line up for you and will become way more smooth yeah if you have not figured it out i mean you will do a lot of mistakes and i mean mistakes are not wrong don't get me wrong like mistakes are great ideally you learn from them but it will take you a bit longer to to maybe get where you are uh, where, you, where you want to be or where you will eventually end up and a lot of it is fate you cannot plan this is where i'm going to be in 10 years like you will bounce around and do various mistakes and follow various interests in your life yeah and i think this was not clear in the beginning um for us um, necessarily and it took us it took us a bit of time and we lost we lost money we lost patience we lost nerves i lost a lot of hairs um <laughs> yeah i mean you have a full you know, head of hair you know for me it's a bit different but it's okay you know i, I learned to accept that uh no but in all seriousness i had come from from a university where I majored in marketing and strategy. Um, most of the things that I did in my two years after university, they were involved with strategy, a lot of it with marketing partnerships. And then I found someone with Marco who is very compatible. His and my strength, they used to be very much on the same side. And, you know, challenging ourselves and saying, hey, look, let's commit. Where does each one of our interests lie and who does what? was definitely something that uh, we had to learn and uh, that took some time in figuring out. Try to be clean yet. It's not always easy. You know? Great book to read here is uh, The Power of Now. Be able to narrow it down. The second challenge is probably going outside of yourself and thinking about the people that you want to surround yourself with. You as an entrepreneur, uh, talking to all of you guys uh, that have not found it yet, or maybe even the, the ones that, that have found it already, like uh, in the end, this will become your baby. This will become your your hobby in a way that you're you're very committed. It's not just you know okay you can show up on a Tuesday evening or you cannot show up. Like you have to show up every single day, and there will be people that have to show up with you. And um, how long term do you think with those people? You know? I think admitting that you have no clue and need professional help to set something up or fix something or they are probably the first steps and for us. I mean, I mentioned before, like we started with four thousand euros and. At that point, we came from Rocket Internet, like we are told the uh, Pakistani government on how to do cross-border commerce, how to import uh, uh, phone, like cell phones, like smartphones into the country, how to uh, refurbish their own postal service. We came back with quite a big ego. We thought we could just do it by ourselves. Yeah? So the moment we managed to close a small equity ticket right in the beginning, so we're not entirely, let's say, bootstrapped. But the moment we, we managed to close that little ticket, we hired 14 interns to do the things that we deemed were important. And I mean, all of those were great people, great personalities that we are still in touch with. Yeah? Some of which uh, uh, we have hired uh, eventually after they graduated. But yeah, the first three months was basically trying to figure out, okay, which, which direction is this ship going to sail? No one really had a clue. Like you had to get them on board and then, you know, then the next two months, like we started hissing the sails, like putting up the, the sails and saying, okay, now everybody is kind of aware who Bucket and Seam is, but the products are, let's go. And then by the time like we had taken off, all of these guys were gone. All of the knowledge was gone. And we're like, okay, let's do this again and again and again. And only now, I would say, we have decided to consider other aspects when hiring the team. We think about, okay, is this a person that I could spend a week with in Pakistan by myself? Is this someone who I could do the Marco Georg test, you know? Would you be able to take a Toyota Corolla with them into the Omani mountains and drive down with them into a valley and just not make it up the hill again and have to sleep there? Will you kill each other? Will you, will you ignore each other? Or will you just make the most out of the situation and solve it? And every single one here today, 
like I can honestly say, I would love to do this. I would love to get lost again in the desert. Yes. And now we have the experts. Like these are people, <laughs> I mean, our team now, they explain us how things, how things have to be done. And it's so nice. It's like, man, I'm, I can learn so many things from these people. And unfortunately, I have only a limited capacity of attention. It's like if, or time with them, you know, if they could spend 12 hours a day with me, even better, I could learn even more. And listening to professionals is also important from outside parties. I think oftentimes we lack as entrepreneurs, people that can relate to ourselves. Family cannot relate. Family, they will say, oh my God, you look like, you have not eaten in five years. Uh, your friends, they will say, oh, man, you're so exaggerating. You're always talking about work, like la 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 la. Um, so finding that person or that group of people who can relate to you, and it doesn't necessarily have to be entrepreneurs. It can also be you know, people who are employed somewhere else, but people who kind of embark on your purpose. Like that's important. That's really, really important. And Pat, I think in the end, that I mean, not the end, but the third huge challenge is, third huge challenge is that it all takes time. Whatever you have planned, Think twice the time, think twice the budget, and maybe then it will be enough. I guess it's it's for a product, it's it's for a brand, it's whatever you want to do. It will take time and you, you have to commit. I think the moment you divide your attention and you divide your focus and you're not present, it will become very difficult to succeed. You got to be in this for the long term, especially as an entrepreneur, because you're going to have so many ups and downs and it's truly a roller coaster ride. And I just wanted to stress that image you were drawing with uh, getting lost in the desert. I think that's, that's really a great metaphor of what you're looking for in co-founders, in, in your team when you're starting out, because uh, you, you can't fight this on your own, right? And, and you can't have all those capabilities that you need to scale your business. So I was wondering, how did you find out what you are good at and what are the things only you can do, but what are the things you are, you, you realize you're not as good at and you have to pass on because that, that's something I'm frequently discussing with other entrepreneurs. And it's always exciting to, to have that, that perspective of reflection, right? And know how your role and your relationship to the company is going to evolve and the roles you're playing with your team with your co-founders did you have any learnings in that awesome and so many great questions today really what, what are you good at man i don't know no um, <laughs> um what are you good at i mean i think the platonic thing to say here is the things that you know you have fun at the things that when you look at your checklist and you're like okay, I have to do this, 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 this. I would love to start with this because I'm super interested, but I guess I should get these things out of the way. That part that you have not moved up, like that, you know, you're eager to get to, like the, the treat for yourself after you have done 90% of other stuff. I think that's that was a way for me for me to figure it out. And to be honest, I mean, 14 people is still a small team, right? So um, there are a lot of touch points with the entire team. And how would you how would you answer how did you figure out that you wanted to be uh, to do a podcast why how did you figure out that this was something that you were good at yeah it's a, it's a great question as well to, to turning the tables there i i think as an as an entrepreneur probably it's it's tougher because you're switching roles all the time and sometimes you have to deliberately stop doing something you maybe even enjoy doing but you know that your priorities lie elsewhere so i think the the other point of reflection one has to make at a certain point in time is what what can only you do you know? where, where should your resources be best placed and what is so important that you or your co-founder have to take the lead on this um but yeah it's not an easy easy answer i think it, it comes with loads of 
self-awareness and reflection and also obviously tons of feedback and, and the mistakes you make on, on the way. And uh, I think you, you just grow into that role. So, so there's probably no, no easy answer. Obviously, it helps to find your passions and, uh, and also talk to your, your team and, and your co-founders and have that discussion or, or to your really close friends that know you for, for ages. So I think those aspects can be quite helpful in finding those. But yeah, as I'm saying, it's probably something a longer process. Isn't it? Well, I do see where you, where you are coming from. I think I would probably ignore what I'm best at. Because oftentimes, yes, maybe, maybe my Excel skills are better than, you know, some other people, most of the people that I hear. But do I like Excel? Then definitely not. Like, do I need to do Excel? I hope that with the 15th person that we hire, like my Excel days are over. No, but <clears throat> I do think that I would take a slight different approach and I would say, okay, I mean, again, going back to the purpose idea, like, why do you found a company? Uh, like, you know, remember, okay, what's the purpose? What Like what idea or what thought is stealing your sleep at night? And then, you know, okay, this, this should be my priority. Yeah. I, I think I would, I would go from there. Like the moment you're so excited about something, that's when you can, can draw the, that's me. Great point. And now moving also slightly towards the end. Oh. Yeah, we, we have to wrap it up at one point in time. I know you're very busy. You, you have to keep on building buckle and seam. So uh, segueing into that question, I was wondering, what do you feel are the next steps for buckle and seam? If you uh, can share any of those that are not too confidential, what, what are you dreaming up at the moment? Yeah, let's, let's see and try to not give too much away. Huh? No, I think building up on what I was saying before, we, we want and we need to make sure that uh, we communicate stronger our purpose, that we're not just good guys in a way, but that we also execute the more foundational elements of our grand claim, so to speak, Yeah, that we produce better products, that we continue to invest into the development and the continuous design of better products, that we communicate the things that we do. Uh, be it the opening of new schools or small things as uh, donating dozens of kilograms of clothes to the Kälte uh, here in Berlin, you know, whatever it is. Um, and that we obviously try to increase our impact or negate our impact to become more efficient in what we do. Yeah, that's the blurry answer. Yeah. Obviously, the grand goal that we have you know, put out there was to educate 10,000 kids at some point. Now, why 10,000 kids? Uh, one can ask and for us it's a it's a basic calculation um, some of the elements I gave away beforehand but we would like to educate one percent of the population that needs education with the next generation so the kids that now go to school their kids and all the people that they affected or that they stimulated to become become educated I guess that's that's in the grand scheme of things for 2021 uh, really stay tuned uh, we're working or not actually working um, I'm also Uh, looking at a new bag collection next week in, in Pakistan um, that is based on the feedback of 900 MVPs. So um, our customers and more importantly, non-customers are able to design products with us. And the very first collection is going to be released uh, in Q2 this year. So we're, we're playing with the thought of uh, introducing completely new materials, reduce our harm on the environment, become more transparent, uh, certify our own, our own production unit. We already BSCI conform, but we would like to Also be ISO uh, conform and wrap conform. B Corp is important for us as a brand. These are really the top line or the, the, grand, the grand things that we have planned and want to execute. 
Absolutely. Looking forward to hearing more of those and uh, seeing it all happening. I, I think you've got really ambitious plans and still so much left to be done and taken advantage of uh, in, in the great opportunities you, you have at hand there. And also um, the approach you took on designing your, your next collections or really having the direct customer feedback. I think that makes Buckle and seem really also participatory brand and really, really an exciting role model to future brand creators. So um, I can only congratulate you on that and wish you all the best for uh, for the next challenges and for the future of Buckle and Seaman. It was really great having you on the podcast, Georg. 100% likewise. A true honor. Uh, you're doing great things here. Um, I love the, the episodes so far that you have uh, you have recorded. Happy to be part of this selected group. And yeah, I can't wait. What's, what's next for you? I'll be in touch.